Hello, mystery fans, and welcome to Marcy McCreary's The Disappearance of Trudy Solomon. I'm Meredith, and this is CamCat Unwrapped. I'll be introducing you to each of our episodes of Marcy McCreary's intriguing mystery, The Disappearance of Trudy Solomon. The story takes place in the Catskills region of New York, in an area that is affectionately referred to as the Borscht Belt, and made famous in the movie Dirty Dancing. But this story is not about finding love at a mountain resort. No. This story is about dirty family secrets and the lengths people will go to to keep them. Secrets that, if revealed, will, and do, destroy many lives. But that's not why I'm excited about this book. No, The Disappearance of Trudy Solomon is one of those unputdownable books that keeps you guessing, giving you clues that makes you feel like a detective yourself. It's a book to live in. When skeletal remains are found at the side of the road, everyone assumes it's Trudy Solomon, a Catskills Hotel Resort waitress who went missing 40 years ago. But when it's discovered that Trudy Solomon just might still be alive, Detective Susan Ford and her father, retired Detective Will Ford, the original detective on the case, become determined to finally uncover what happened all those years ago. CamCat Publishing presents The Disappearance of Trudy Solomon by Marcy McCreary, narrated by Rachel Fulginetti. For Dad, the best tumbler in the Catskills. Chapter 1 Monday, October 22nd, 2018 My palms were sweatier than usual. I glanced around before reaching into my desk drawer to rub secret on them. Yes, that secret, the antiperspirant. There was going to be lots of handshaking today, and I wasn't sure I could avoid it. They finally solved the case. Missing August 6, 1978. Found October 22, 2018. Forty years, two months, and 16 days. And the answer? Right under their noses the entire time. Dad didn't know yet. My plan was to stop by Horizon Meadows residences after my shift to break the news. Sally McIver strode across the precinct floor and planted herself on the edge of my desk. Hey, Susan, can you believe it? Wait until your dad hears the story. The story. The one that consumed my life 40 years ago a case my mother derisively referred to as a big effing deal, emphasis on the F. For years, the disappearance of Trudy Solomon confounded my father, the lead detective on the case, until it faded away, yet not completely, like a chalkboard where you can see remnants of math equations long erased. The cold case of Trudy Solomon. No strong suspect, no obvious motive, no forensics to test, no computer databases to mine. 
just gumshoe detective work that yielded few leads and no resolution. Until now. Until this fluky stroke of luck. Someone leaked the story to the press. That didn't take long. Trudy was found only a few hours ago. An unruly group of reporters swarmed the police station. I held no animus against reporters. Like locusts, they were harmless when just a handful were flitting around the halls. But they had a way of causing damage when they got all riled up around a potentially juicy story. I had been dodging them all morning. I wasn't sure how much more I could offer up than what Ray Gorman, the detective, and the guy who shares my bed, had told them. He's the one who connected the dots and found her. I could only assume I was the human interest side of the story. They'd want to know how Dad reacts to the news. They'd want to know if I knew about this case back when I was 13, and if so, how it impacted me, and how I felt now. But that was my story, not theirs. Four weeks ago, Monticello Police Chief Cliff Eldridge called me into his office. A day like any other day. A day stuck at my desk while internal affairs reviewed my case. A day with my gun locked away. A day feeling spasms of pain in my right thigh. A throbbing reminder of the bullet lodged in fatty tissue. I had returned to the station exactly one week earlier, on September 17th, cleared for desk duty and not much else. Shuffling papers, watching surveillance tapes, answering phones, monitoring police vehicles. They called it restricted duty. Felt more like purgatory. Am I in or am I out? My future as a detective resting in the hands of others. We just got a call from a senior investigator with the New York State Police. Eldridge glanced at a piece of paper on his desk. John Minot. Ever hear of him? No, sir. His unit found skeletal remains along Route 9W in Ulster County. He ran up against a wall trying to identify the body, so he started going through regional missing persons reports. Eldridge paused and peered over his cheaters. Do you know where I am going with this? Are you saying this could be Trudy Solomon? Are the bones 40 years old? They've been there for some time, but they haven't determined how long yet. Detective Minot claims they roughly match the description of Trudy Solomon. Female, Caucasian, late 20s, early 30s. Holy shit. And cause of death? Is that known? Gunshot to the head. Close range. Jeez. Minot is looking for a relative of Trudy's so he can run a DNA test to confirm or rule out that it's her. He thought we might have something in the files, people we can contact. But this case has been dormant for so long. We'll have to do a little digging on the relative front. Eldridge shifted slightly in his chair, then cleared his throat. Two short grunts. <clears throat> I know you, Susan. You're going to want this case. I can see the gears turning in your head right now. But you know the situation. You're on desk duty until you are cleared by internal affairs, the department shrink, and your doctor. If it were up to me, I'd hand this to you to follow up. But it's not up to me. 
Who are you assigning this to? Ray and Marty. I told them to keep you apprised, and if they need help, the kind you can do from a desk, they'll let you know. Okay? That's the best I can do right now. And my dad? Can I let him know? That's up to you, Susan. But I would keep it to myself until we know more. No need to get his hopes up, then dashed. Probably best not to replay 1978 again. You were too young to remember, but I'm not. Oh, I remembered. When the world is crashing down around you during your preteen years, you remember everything. F you, mother. With an emphasis on the F. I decided not to tell Dad until there was a definitive answer. Eldridge was right. No need to dredge this up prematurely. In the weeks that followed, Ray and Marty sifted through local and national databases to find a living relative of Trudy Solomon. Not a soul emerged. But Ray did hit upon something odd. When he did a search on Trudy Solomon's social security number, he found it was still in use, associated with a medical bill for a patient in Massachusetts. That patient was a woman named Gertrude Resnick, who had the same birth date, February 16, 1951, as Gertrude, a.k.a. Trudy Solomon. Eldridge gave them the go-ahead to travel 250 miles east to a hospital in Lowell, Massachusetts, to question her. In the early morning hours of October 22nd, Ray awoke early to make the trip. Wish you could come with us, he whispered in my ear. Then he leaned over and kissed my forehead before I had a chance to draw the blankets over my face. You know, you're kind of cute when you're mad. Then I must be cute all the time. By mid-afternoon, I was getting antsy, waiting to hear from Ray as to whether the Trudy in Lowell was, in fact, our Trudy. From the moment the body was found until now, what felt like the longest four weeks of my life, I had been in a constant state of agitation. Between keeping this discovery from my dad and awaiting clearance from IA, I couldn't remember a time in my adult life that sucked more. Well, except for being shot. And almost dying. I was in the police station bathroom, trousers at my ankles, when Ray finally called me. Hey, did you talk to her yet? My voice echoed around me in the little stall. Gertrude Resnick? Not yet. We're about to go in. Did you get your gun and badge back? Yeah, a half hour ago. Super. We'll celebrate tonight. I stared at the inked heart on the stall door. The initials SM and EP scribbled in its center. Sally still refused to use this stall after Elaine Pellman broke up with her nearly two years ago. I suggested she paint over it, but Sally insisted it should live on, like her pain. Susan? You there? Yeah, sure. You okay? Yeah. It's just been a long morning. Lots of paperwork and shit. I was definitely not in a celebratory mood. Sure, IA exonerated me, but many folks in this town certainly hadn't. In the end, it came down to my word, an officer in good standing, against a criminal's word. The fact that I was shot probably helped my case. Thing is, 
I shot and killed the person who wasn't holding the gun. And Calvin Barnes's family still wanted answers. I splashed cold water on my face. I tried not to look in the mirror, dreading what I would see staring back at me. But I glanced up anyway. I'd seen better days. A recent botched dye job turned my curls from chocolate brown to bluish black, which would have been cool 30 years ago when I was going through my punk rock phase. The concealer I applied this morning was doing little to mask the charcoal-tinged bags under my eyes. Even my blue eyes seemed dingier. No longer bright as cornflower, they were murky, like an oil-slicked ocean. I grabbed a couple of paper towels and patted my face dry. Then I scrounged around my bag and removed some essentials. Concealer, lipstick, eyeshadow, blush. Ah, the wonders of makeup. A dab here and there, and voila. I didn't look half bad for a been-through-the-ringer 53-year-old detective. A new sign greeted me at the entrance to Dad's digs. Welcome to Horizon Meadows Residences. What I wanted to know is who came up with the name Horizon Meadows. Did they just pick two random words and throw them together? The place was literally in the woods. You could barely imagine a horizon. And anything that might once have been a meadow had been subdivided and built on. So why not call it Forest Haven or Sylvan Acres? Maybe because for the residents of places like this, the horizon was a metaphor for what awaits them all. After his second heart attack, Dad relented, but not without complaint. Claimed he would die within six months of moving, as he put it, to an old age home. He was convinced he would be reduced to a drooling, blithering, incapable clod. That was two years ago. Then a few old guys from the police force moved in. At 77, Dad was the reigning Horizon Meadows bridge and shuffleboard champion. He and most of his buddies were in Level 1, independent living. A decently appointed one-bedroom apartment with an emergency call button in the bathroom. Bud was in Level 3, a floor in the building that featured a nurse on duty at all times. And poor Andy, Level 4. Dementia got the best of him, but he joined them in the dining hall on his better days. A few months ago, he asked my father to put a pillow over his head when he reached level six. I doubt Dad would oblige. But then again, I wouldn't bet on it. As I made my way through the lobby to the computer room, I wondered if Dad had gotten wind of the Trudy Solomon story. If he had, I was pretty sure I would have heard from him— I spotted Dad on the far side of the computer room, helping Agnes navigate her granddaughter's Facebook page. Hey, Dad. Hi, Agnes. Agnes leaned toward Dad like a lion protecting her cub. Hi, Susan, Agnes purred. Will told me about your brush with death. I prayed for you every night. And well, here you are, looking wonderful. Prayers answered. God is looking out for you. He must have heard you. I glanced at Dad, eyebrows raised, admonishing my sarcasm. Thank you, Agnes. I'll take all the help I can get. Well, 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 
The prodigal daughter has returned. How's the bullet wound? Dad, I'm fine. I've got some news for you. I glance sideways at Agnes. Can we find a quiet place to talk? Agnes patted Dad's arm. We can do this later. I'll be right here when you return. It was unseasonably warm for late October, the temperature hovering around 70 degrees, so we headed out to the benches behind the main building. There's been a break in the Trudy Solomon case. I paused to study his reaction. Skepticism. She's alive. Ray found her. His mouth twitched and one eyebrow lifted ever so slightly, signaling a shift from incredulous to unconvinced. Are you sure it's her? One hundred percent sure. What happened to her? Where's she been all these years? That's still not clear. She has Alzheimer's, has had it for a while now. Then how do you know it's her? I told him how they found skeletal remains that jogged the case open, then traced the social security number to Gertrude Resnick. I told him that she'd identified herself from a Cutman Hotel work ID photo, proclaiming me, and then verbally identifying her husband, Ben Solomon, when shown a picture of him. Holy shit. Holy. He paused and shook his head. Where is she? In an Alzheimer's care facility in Lowell, Massachusetts. Well, I'll be damned. A social security number trace. <sighs> Seems so simple. Dad, things were different back then. You couldn't just plug a social security number into a computer. Don't second guess yourself. Dad shifted his attention to his shoes and poked at the dirt with the tip of his worn loafers. And the remains that were found? Has she been identified? Nope. So now what? Is Ray going to find out what happened to Trudy? I mean, maybe she was kidnapped? There could still be a criminal element to this. I think you know the answer to that. Eldridge is not going to put any more resources on this. Did he say that? Well, no. But where's the crime? She's been found. Don't you want to know what happened to her? Sure, I'm curious, but... Ask Eldridge to reopen the case. Or take a leave of absence. Help me figure this out. We had the beginning. We now have the ending. Let's figure out the middle. Are you kidding? For what reason? Do I sound like I'm kidding? This has haunted me for decades. I deserve to know what happened. We finally have a break we can work with. What was with this we shit? 1978 was one of the worst years in my life. Grandpa died. Mom and Dad separated. My best friend dumped me for a new best friend. Mother hit the bottle hard, and a woman who went missing pulled Dad out of my orbit. The funny thing was, I'd been obsessed with this case, too. But looking back, it was hard to discern if it was the mysterious nature of the case itself that intrigued me, or my desire to bond with my father over something. Anything. I pestered him incessantly about leads, suspects, witnesses— he was so sure she was kidnapped or murdered. But there was also a theory floating around that she simply wanted to walk away from her life. 
and I just wanted to know how that was even possible. How did she do it? Why did she do it? Where did she go? Did anyone help her? Trudy captured my imagination. I imprinted on her at a time when I wanted to disappear, reinvent myself. But I was 13. What did I know about how to do such a thing? I'll think about it. My palms started sweating profusely again. Palmer hyperhidrosis, the clinical term for excessive, uncontrollable sweating of the hands or palms, the bane of my existence. Trudy. Quite a day, the nurse said, pulling the comforter over Trudy's chest and tucking the edge under her chin. Quite the day indeed. They found me, Trudy whispered, then thought, was I lost? They wanted to know my secrets, but I locked my lips so the words wouldn't come out. The words stayed in my mouth. They have no business being said. The nurse settled onto the lazy boy in the corner of the room. She pulled two knitting needles, a half-knitted sweater, and a ball of yarn out of the bag beside her. That picture, that was something. Jogged your memory, huh? Trudy lowered the comforter just enough to free her arms. That was me. Trudy squeezed her eyes shut to concentrate, to remember how she dolled herself up for that ID picture for the Cutman Hotel. Ben didn't like the photo. He said I looked crazed. The nurse quieted the knitting needles. Who said that? Trudy didn't answer. She thought about all the questions those two nice policemen had asked her. Lots of questions. Who said you were crazy, Trudy? The man in the picture. For a split second, Trudy remembered what happened that summer. There and gone in a flash. Just squiggly lines and misshapen circles. There and gone in a flash. Chapter 2 Tuesday, October 23rd, 2018 Ray and I were two months shy of our sixth anniversary as a couple, two of those cohabiting. Before Ray, there was Simon. Before Simon, there was Evan. Before Evan, there was Phil. A pause between each one. Phil was my high school sweetheart. Nine months after graduation, our daughter Natalie was born. A year later, we got married. Four years later, we called it quits. My one and only marriage. If you're not good at something, why keep doing it? Being a mother, though, that I was good at. I would just think about what my mother would do in any parenting situation and do the opposite. Reverse role modeling. Are you going to do it? Natalie asked, juggling a twin on each hip. Both redheads, like their mother, inherited from Phil. The ringlets and long eyelashes were my genetic contribution. Here, give me one of those. I lifted one of the boys above my head and slowly lowered him until our foreheads lightly touched. A squeal escaped and I inhaled his warm, somewhat sour breath. I've got Henry, right? Yes, Mom, I've got Charlie. 
So, what have you decided? I haven't. I'm afraid Dad will obsess over this again. And at his age, well, I don't think he can handle the stress. On the other hand, this might actually be a good thing for Dad. Give him something to keep his mind active. But I kept that thought to myself. And what about you? Can you handle the stress with everything else that's going on? Natalie, I'm not one of your cuckoo patients. I got shot. I shot someone. I'm dealing with it. I secured Henry in the swing that hung in the doorway between the kitchen and the dining room. Besides, I told my father I would seriously think about it. Mom, you almost died. And you killed someone. Maybe wait a few months. Get your sea legs back. Natalie placed Charlie in the bouncy chair across from Henry. So, if you were to look into the case, where would you start? She, too, was not immune to the pull of this case. Your grandfather wants to work backwards from Lowell. Backtrack using her social security number. I would prefer to work forward from the day she failed to show up for her doctor's appointment at Monticello Hospital. Handle it like any cold case that gets resurrected. Interview people who knew her, re-examine evidence, review police reports, find inconsistencies in witness statements. We now know she wasn't murdered. Dad had been convinced she was. That probably led him down a few wrong paths. And to what end? What does it matter now? There was no way to explain to Natalie why this mattered. This case brought back so many memories, and not all of them good. It was just an itch I needed to scratch, like a mosquito bite, small but irritating. The nagging feeling that knowing what happened to her would right all the wrongs from that year. But I wasn't in the mood to get into all that. Your grandfather is convinced that something nefarious went down. He believes if Trudy had just run off, he would have found her. He wants to make sure justice is served. Yeah, something like that. He also had that itch. And I was pretty sure it was bigger than mine. Jock itch, maybe. The Cutman no longer exists. Monticello Hospital no longer exists. Come to think of it, very little from back then still exists. Natalie crouched in front of Henry's swing and planted a kiss on the top of his head, then looked back at me. So, exactly where are you going to start looking? You can't tell now, but Sullivan County was once a thriving, vibrant area, especially in the summers. To understand this area's ascent, you have to go back to the turn of the 20th century, Think Fiddler on the Roof, the sequel. At the end of the show, or movie, if that's your thing, Tevya, the dairy farmer, leaves his little village of Anatevka for America. If there was a part two, he would find himself on the teeming Lower East Side of Manhattan. He would look around, shrug, and say to himself, in Yiddish, on the one hand, I have found myself a job in a factory so I can support my family. But on the other hand, inflection rising, this is no place for a dairy farmer. Where can I go to earn a living and breathe fresh air? 
He learns he can borrow a bissel of money from the Jewish Agricultural Society and buy himself a farm in Sullivan County, New York, 90 miles north of the city. Eli and Fanny Cutman were real-life immigrants from Russia who purchased hundreds of acres of land for farming. They bought the Round Valley Farm sometime around 1910 and took in boarders, charging them $7 apiece, chamber pot included. When they passed away in the 1940s, their son Sam and daughter-in-law Sylvia inherited the property. I don't know if you would call them visionary, but they, and other boarding house owners, saw an opportunity. Boarding houses were torn down, and in their place, sprawling hotels were built to attract the growing population of Jews looking for respite from the sweltering summers in the city. In the first half of the 20th century, Jews had limited vacation options. They were barred from hotels and country clubs up and down the East Coast. A gentleman's agreement, this was called, an innocuous-sounding term that was anything but. In the second half of the century, as anti-Semitic restrictions waned, it was family tradition and nostalgia that kept them coming to this region. The hotels had a lot to offer. Idyllic settings boasting indoor pools, outdoor pools, golf courses, ski hills, nightclub shows, athletic fields, dancing lessons, exercise classes, bingo, shuffleboard tournaments, bridge and mahjong, tennis courts, camps for kids and teens. But the biggest draw was the food. Three meals a day, all you can eat. Just a two-hour drive from steamy New York City. The Jewish Alps, Dad would say. Others called it the Borscht Belt. Sam and Sylvia Cutman had two daughters, Rachel and Deborah. The older daughter, Deborah, eloped with a bellhop and moved to New Jersey. Rachel went to Barnard College but never graduated. She returned to the hotel when she was 19 years old to help run it when Sam became ill. She, too, married a bellhop, Stanley Roth. Rumor was that she had no choice. Scott was born less than nine months after their wedding. Then, in a span of eight years, Rachel gave birth to three more children, Meryl, Lori, and Joshua. When Sam and Sylvia retired in their early 70s, Stanley and Rachel seized the reins. To ensure a loyal staff, Stanley installed his own family, his brother and sister-in-law, David and Diane, several cousins, and an uncle, in various management positions. Lori Roth and I were inseparable from kindergarten through seventh grade. At the time of Trudy Solomon's disappearance, we were still best friends, so I spent a good chunk of my preteen years at the Cutman. The outdoor pool was the grandest among all the hotel pools. Olympic size with three diving boards of varying degrees of difficulty. If Lori and I just wanted to hang out, we would head over to the game room and spend every quarter we had on pinball, air hockey, and the jukebox. At night, we danced at the teen disco or sat at the nightclub bar drinking Shirley Temples. As the owner's daughter, Lori was practically royalty there, and she and her siblings were treated with special deference by the staff. None of the Roth kids demanded such treatment. It was just the natural order of things. For many members of the staff, it was a way to get in good with Stanley and Rachel, 
especially Stanley, who was deemed by many to be a demanding, if not demeaning, boss. By the end of eighth grade, Lori and I were no longer speaking to each other, so my days hanging out at the Cutman dwindled with our fading friendship. You could say we drifted apart, but that would be kind. There is this moment when your family's socioeconomic status starts to matter. Around 13 years old, when the desire to be popular short-circuits girls' brains is usually that moment. Lori was the daughter of a hotel owner. I was the daughter of a cop. Her mother went to Manhattan to shop. My mother went to the local liquor store. She wore Jordache jeans. I wore Lee's. Our bond couldn't survive class consciousness. After our friendship soured, I would sneak onto the hotel grounds, take a swim, hit the game room, dance at the disco. Sometimes Lori would spot me, but she kept her distance. One night I got stopped by a security guard who told me Rachel would call the cops the next time I stepped foot on their property. Claimed she didn't want the townies using the facilities. I was reduced from best friend to pariah in a matter of months. One by one, the siblings peeled off to college. None of them were interested in coming back to the area to run the hotel. In 1995, Stanley and Rachel sold the Cutman to an Indian guru who transformed it into an ashram. According to Dad, the Roths left the area with a nice windfall to pursue other interests. And so the demise of the Catskills area began. The dirty dancing days were long over. Other hotel owners were devising their own exit strategies. Vacationers were no longer flocking to the area. The now grown-up kids, the ones who had come with their parents to these hotels, were not enchanted with the run-down rooms, dated lobbies, dilapidated athletic facilities, and kosher menus. The nail was hammered into the coffin when the gambling referendums failed to pass in the early aughts. Potential buyers fled. Abandoned hotels crumbled. Weeds proliferated. Graffiti adorned building walls. Sort of like the ruins of the ancient fortress of Masada in southern Israel, without the UNESCO World Heritage Site status. Natalie was right. The last 25 years had not been kind to this region. Anyone associated with the Cutmen was long gone. Trudy's old friends were God knows where, or dead. I had worked cold cases before, but this one was akin to trying to locate the delicate seeds of a white dandelion after you blew them off to make a wish. I stopped by Horizon Meadows on my way to the police station to give Dad the bad news. I had a litany of excuses. Suspects and witnesses left long ago. The hospital where she was last seen was closed. The Cutman non-existent. Our victim, or whatever she was, couldn't piece together two sentences. Ray thought it was a bad idea. I had a bum leg. And my near-death experience was messing with my head. Dad wasn't taking no for an answer. He pulled out the I'll be dead soon card. And even though I was expecting that, it still stung. But then he offered up something unexpected. What if I told you I know how to get in touch with Ben Solomon, 
the husband. You know where he is? I asked, realizing my mistake the minute the words came tumbling out of my mouth. He'd set an ambush, and I strolled right in. You can say we're like pen pals, although these days it's more like email pals. You know, I always suspected he had something to do with her disappearance, but he insisted he was as much in the dark as anyone. He over-insisted, if you know what I mean. What's that line from Shakespeare? The lady doth protest too much? Yeah, that. He made it a point to get in touch with me every so often, trying to prove his innocence. I figured it couldn't hurt to write him back, stay close to him if he did or said something stupid. My spidey sense always tingled when I was around him. Dad was the white rabbit, and I was following him down the rabbit hole. What makes you think he'll have a different story now that she's been found? I asked. People get spooked when a missing person reappears all of a sudden, or a witness pops up out of the blue. Maybe he's afraid she said something to someone, so he tries to cover his ass and reveals something new, something self-incriminating. Talking to this one guy isn't going to break this case open. You know that. We would need to get in touch with people who knew her from the hotel and her hometown to piece this thing together. And Lord only knows where all those folks ended up. I know. You know what? I know where they are. They don't call me the computer king of Horizon Meadows for nothing. There's a Facebook group called Summers at the Cutman. And guess who runs it? One of the Roth kids. And get this. Hundreds of staff and guests from the 1970s have joined. There's also a growing up in Mill Basin, Brooklyn, 50s and 60s group. That's where and when Trudy grew up. We put out a few feelers, see what we can reel in. Like throwing chum to the sharks. See who bites. You know that proverbial fork in the road? I was standing right in front of it. And both paths seemed shitty. Left, I tell Dad to let it go. She's been found. End of story. He gets pissed. Right? I ask Eldridge for permission to look into the case, opening that little door to crazy wonderland. I get sucked into the vortex of the worst days of my childhood. But damn, I'd be lying if I didn't admit I was somewhat curious. Chapter 3 Wednesday, October 24th, 2018 Having nearly drained my glass of bud, I signaled the bartender for a refill. If I hadn't become a detective, I would have seriously considered bartending. Some people laughed when I confessed this offbeat occupational fantasy, and maybe it was silly. But it was the truth. I thought there was something alluring about standing behind a bar, owning a space that no one can intrude on, concocting cocktails or simply tapping a beer line, Getting to know the regular clientele or hearing a story from a stranger passing through town. I would prefer a hotel lobby bar over a local saloon. A place filled with out-of-towners, mainly business folks, married or single, male or female, who were susceptible to one-night stands. Men ordering single malt scotch, neat. Women ordering dirty martinis, dry. 
what's a nice girl like you doing in a place like this? And bearing witness to other corny pickup lines. Then you go home at night without the weight of the world on your shoulders. Well, unless a patron slipped someone a roofie or a customer who had one too many got into a car accident, then some amount of guilt would fall on your shoulders, proving no job was fully without consequences and burden. Sally came up behind me, reached over the bar, and pilfered a slice of lime from the fruit tray. She inserted it into her mouth, creating an illusion of big green lips, and sucked the juice out. Hey there, stranger. She winced and shuddered, a delayed reflex from ingesting the tart lime. Have you decided yet? I caved. I told Dad I would ask Eldridge about reopening the case. Well, I guessed wrong. Definitely thought you would take a pass. I'm doing this for my father. He's convinced there's a criminal element to this, and with no statute of limitations for kidnapping, he could go to his grave knowing he got his man. And you? What do you think? I'm not sold on that theory. I'm more inclined to think she wanted to start a new life and figured out a way to erase herself, which I find intriguing. I think it would be kind of cool to figure out what happened to her between the time she disappeared from here and reappeared in Lowell. Give her a life story. Without it, it's like she never existed. Alzheimer's has robbed her of her story. Maybe we can tell it for her. And if Eldridge says no, will you take a leave of absence and do it on your own? I would prefer to do it officially, but I'd consider it. And Ray? Is he okay with this? Ray is ambivalent. He tossed out that I was free to do whatever I wanted, although he thinks it's a waste of time. Natalie thinks it's a bad idea, but that's the psychologist in her. She wants me to reduce the level of stress in my life, not pile it on. It would have been nice to have their full support, but I get it. I reached for the bowl of bar nuts and scooped out a few. If Ray told me he was going to take a leave of absence to work on a case his father couldn't solve, I would have probably told him he was... I gazed at the assortment of nuts in my palm. Nuts. Sally waved to the bartender and yelled, Guinness! She pounded her fist on the bar. I think you should do it. You're the best detective in this precinct. Hell, probably in all of Sullivan County. If anyone can crack this case, you can. Before this whole Calvin Barnes thing, I might have agreed with you. But there are still some people in this community who think I should be fired, that I got off with a slap on the fuck what the community thinks. You should be exalted as a hero, but instead they're accusing you of racial discrimination. For God's sake, you were shot. Yeah, but the guy I shot in return wasn't the one holding a gun. It was Wayne Railman who pulled the trigger. So the white guy shoots me, and what do I do? I shoot the black guy, because I could have sworn he had the gun. Perhaps in a snap judgment, I fired at the man I assumed was threatening my life. You know, implicit bias. Don't you dare blame this on some split-second thought process. Sally crinkled her face. Man, I would just like to see all these armchair cops walk in our shoes one day. 
If they knew you like I do, they would know this is so bullshit. So should I tell them I voted for Obama twice and attend Black Lives Matter meetings? If it helps change minds, hell yeah. Sally took a swig from her fresh pint of Guinness and a little foam mustache formed on her upper lip. Get Rhonda to vouch for you. Having the lead organizer of the local BLM chapter on your side has to count for something. I'm not so sure Rhonda is on my side. I haven't heard from her since this thing happened. I pressed my slightly sweaty fingers against the icy beer mug. Can we change the subject? Sure. Has the Jane Doe skeleton been ID'd yet? Nope. Not sure how involved our department will be with that. The remains were found in Ulster County, not our jurisdiction. So, when are you going to talk to Eldridge about Trudy Solomon? Tomorrow morning. Let's make a toast, Sally raised her pint. To Trudy Solomon. Here's hoping she's had a good life. Chapter 4 Thursday, October 25th, 2018 My sit-down with Eldridge went better than I thought it would. I got the feeling he, too, was curious about what happened to Trudy Solomon. Eldridge's mother worked at the Cutman as a waitress in the main dining room back then, and although she had not been friends with Trudy, I'm sure her disappearance was a topic of conversation and speculation in the Eldridge household— when Eldridge joined the force in 1981, the Trudy Solomon case had been active but backburnered. My father was still assigned to the case, and he was given some leeway to investigate new leads as long as he kept closing his other cases. Eldridge dabbled in it, as did all the rookies who thought they had the chops to break the case. It never hurts to get a fresh pair of eyes on a case like this— but eventually resources dwindled, new cases took priority, and Trudy's husband wasn't applying much pressure. By 1982, Ben Solomon had remarried. The Trudy Solomon case officially closed in 1983. Eldridge said he would let me know his answer after he had a chance to discuss my request with his superiors. He would prefer to keep it official, as opposed to me playing private detective with Dad. Well, how did it go? Sally asked as I passed her desk on the way to mine. Hard to say. He'll let me know in a few days. When Sally walked into the precinct ten years ago, I was the only female officer in the place. Today, there were four of us. Four women, twenty-one guys. A handful of them testosterone-infused, dick-measuring jerks. So we put a lot of thought into determining who wins our biggest jackass of the precinct contest every year. Jerry Houseman was the reigning champ, holding the title for three years. Last year was a close call, but the red MAGA baseball cap pushed him over the finish line. Those guys may have given me a hard time when I started, and I was the daughter of a well-respected detective— but Sally had two tours in Iraq under her belt when she walked through that door, which meant respect from the ranks on day one. She enlisted in the Army the week after 9-11. Her dad, Dennis MacGyver, was a bit of a local legend himself. Cop-turned-bar owner. 
Every Boxing Day, he invited law enforcement from surrounding counties to enjoy a free meal at MacGyver's Pub. The tradition started in 2002, when Dennis returned home from Ireland with his new bride, Fiona McDougall, from Doolin. Best beef stew this side of the Atlantic Ocean. Getting on Sally's bad side got you banned from MacGyver's Pub. Nobody crossed Sally. My thigh started to throb. The tightening sensation usually gripped me during moments of anxiety. The meeting with Eldridge wasn't especially stressful, so I was pretty sure that was not the cause. I had a feeling it was related to what I was planning to do later this morning. I hobbled over to my desk. Sally followed me. You okay? Yeah, it's nothing. The bullet is acting up and my hands feel like Niagara Falls on a rainy day. I sat down at my desk and rubbed my hands on my pants. Sally pulled open the drawer and pointed to the secret. I shook my head. Too many people around. I glanced at the mounted clock behind Sally's head. Nine on the dot. Two whole hours until my visit with Mom. Two hours of a throbbing thigh and uncontrollable sweating. Fuck it. I uncapped the secret and applied it to my palms. My mom's house, the house of my teenage years, was frozen in the 70s. I walked through the front door and stepped back in time. Orange shag carpeting in the living room, mustard-colored appliances atop faux brick linoleum in the kitchen, and throughout the first floor of the house, aging wallpaper blooming with orange and pink flowers. The once vibrant colors were yellowed with decades of cigarette smoke settling on the petals. I stood in the doorway outside the kitchen, peering in. Usually there would be a stack of dirty dishes in the sink, but this morning the plates were nested neatly in the plastic drying rack. The counters were wiped clean and only a coffee mug and spoon sat in the sink. Probably the cup of decaf Mom drank before bed in an attempt to palliate the likely morning hangover. I poked my head into the living room, half expecting to see Mother lying on the couch with an empty vodka bottle at arm's length. Instead, I saw a tidy room with the throw blanket neatly folded on the back of the sofa and the pillows arranged symmetrically in the corners. Felix the cat, a name my mother bestowed upon her feline companion during one of her lighter moods, was curled up on a tartan swivel chair. She lashed her tail when she spied me, but she didn't move from her perch. An episode of The Twilight Zone flashed through my mind. An alien from Planet Clean had taken over my mother's body. Either that or she'd hired a maid, which fell more into the fantasy genre. I doubled back to the foyer and noticed other oddities. You wouldn't call them oddities in most households. Vacuumed rugs, dusted banister, a lavender-scented air freshener plugged into a wall socket. But in my mother's house, this was more than a little weird. The cop in me kicked in and I tiptoed upstairs. The timbre of what sounded like rap music was emanating from my old bedroom, I stood still outside the door, trying to make sense of what my eyes and ears picked up. What was going on behind that door? I crept down the hall to my mother's bedroom. I put my ear against the door, 
light snoring. I turned the doorknob, opening the door just enough to stick my head in. The rancid smell of stale cigarettes escaped, causing me to involuntarily shudder and tighten my nostrils. The room was pitch black, but light from the hallway streamed across the carpet and onto the bed, illuminating the curved outline of my mother's body under the covers. She stirred for a few seconds, but remained asleep. I twisted the knob and carefully closed the door. Okay, now what? Door number one or door number two? I knew what awaited me behind door number two if I disturbed my mother, so I headed back over to door number one. I knocked gently. Come in. A male voice. Wasn't expecting that. I opened the door with a fair amount of trepidation and was a bit thrown by what I saw. A twenty-something black guy sat at my desk. The glow from the laptop computer bounced off the lenses of his wire-framed glasses, giving him an otherworldly vibe. If there was an alien sitting there, I would have been less surprised. Hello, he said. Are you here to see Vera Ford? Yeah, I'm her daughter. And you are? I'm Thomas, Thomas Dillon. Vera, your mother, told me she told you about me, that I'm living here and helping out. I kept my expression neutral and raised my eyebrows. He lowered the music, then stood up to shake my hand. I instinctively wiped my hand on my shirt before offering it to him. Susan, right? I'm an orderly at Horizon Meadows, and I got to talking to your dad one day and told him I didn't have a place to live. He asked me if I was any good at cleaning and straightening up messes, and I told him that my ma was the finest hotel housekeeper in the Catskills and taught me a whole lot. He said I could stay here if I kept it tidy. And my mother went along with this? Well, at first, no. But your dad spoke to her a few times. He convinced her to try this out temporarily, see how it goes. We hardly see each other anyway. If I'm not at Horizon Meadows, I'm at Sullivan County Community College, over in Lock Sheldrake, or in here studying. I didn't know what shocked me more, these living arrangements, or that Dad was having conversations with my mother. I glanced over at his computer. She doesn't mind the music? I play it real low, or wear my beats. She hasn't complained about that. You okay with her... I searched for the right word. Lifestyle? It's a small price to pay for a roof over my head. It's what your dad calls a symbiotic relationship. Uh-huh. So, what are you studying? Criminal justice. Got one more semester to go after this one. Hoping to get a job at Woodburn Correctional. Maybe become a cop. For one of my classes, I had to interview a police officer or a detective, and I'm thinking, when am I going to find the time to interview a police officer? I'm telling this to your dad, and he's smiling the whole time. Then he tells me he was a cop. Then a detective. He paused to see if he still had my attention. He did. Took a breath and continued. I was bouncing around, sleeping on friends' couches, my car, the park if it was warm out, sometimes the staff overnight room at Horizon. I don't mind cleaning and straightening up in exchange for this room, and your ma? She ain't no real bother, really. I have an auntie like her. I know what it's like. 
Your dad told me, See, Susan, I ain't no bother. Our heads turned on cue, like a pair of synchronized swimmers. My bathrobed mother swayed in the doorway. I mind my business. Thomas here minds his. He has a word for it. What's that word? Symbiotic, Miss Ford. But it actually means. So, Susan, what brings you around for a visit? I locked eyes with Thomas, and for two people who didn't know each other, we shared a moment of understanding. I led my mother out of my, now his, room and pulled the door shut. The faint sound of hip-hop resumed. My stomach growled. The last thing I had eaten was a granola bar four hours earlier at seven o'clock that morning. Mother was in the shower, and from past experience, I calculated she wouldn't be down for another twenty minutes or so. When I opened the refrigerator, I was confronted by an assortment of condiments and leaky Chinese food containers. I leaned over to examine a container of cottage cheese, but I wasn't keen on opening it and seeing whatever science experiment was germinating inside. Yesterday's vestige of coffee was in the carafe, so I washed it out and started a fresh pot. From the pantry, I unearthed a box of ringdings a few months past their sell-by date. I had bought into the urban legend about Twinkies and figured if they can survive for decades— so too can its sister, Hostess Snack Cake. Mom liked to say I inherited the skinny gene from Dad's family, that I could eat anything and not gain a pound. But in the last few years, I noticed my belly and thighs taking on a life of their own. The skinny gene was no match for menopause. I put the ringdings back where I found them. The coffee machine beeped. I poured myself a fresh cup of coffee and assessed the kitchen. Hats off to Thomas and his cleaning prowess. Floors were not sticky. The microwave had only a few flecks of food clinging to its innards. The old appliances, the dishwasher was strictly for show, could pass as a deliberate decorating decision by a 70s-inspired interior decorator. Even the oak table had a bit of shine to it. I splayed my fingers on the Formica counter. The cool surface instantly chilled my warm, moist palms. Good, you made coffee, Mom said, limping over to the coffee pot. Recent knee replacement surgery hadn't improved her gait. To what do I owe this visit? I'm here because Dad said you wanted to talk to me. She dumped three spoonfuls of sugar in her coffee and sat down at the kitchen table. I joined her. She fiddled with the pack of Marlboros on the table. The bright bulb above us accentuated her telltale signs of being an unrepentant smoker, vertical wrinkles above her upper lip, deep crow's feet along the outsides of her eyes, sagging upper arms and breasts, and a yellowish stain on the insides of her middle and pointer fingers. A missed hairdresser's appointment left her with about an inch of gray hair at the roots. Miss Sullivan County, 1961. If the light was right and you squinted, you could still see why she won the crown. The announcement in the local paper, the framed clipping still hung on the living room wall, showcased her winning attributes. Chestnut brown hair, blue eyes, 5'5", 115 pounds, 
But now, at 75, she looked older than Dad at 77. Oh, right. She pulled out a cigarette and lit it. She inhaled deeply and exhaled slowly, relishing the rush of nicotine to her system. He told me about Trudy Solomon. I think it's a bad idea for you to drag your father into this. He's not well. I stood and retreated to a corner of the kitchen to avoid the smoke. A shitload of questions had hit me all at once. Why was Dad talking to her about this? What concern was it of hers if we did a little snooping? Why, all of a sudden, did she care about my father's well-being? What angle was she playing? Is this any of your business? I waved my hand in an attempt to dissipate the smoke, but it was already penetrating my hair and clothes like a bloodstain on carpet. This is what you want to talk to me about? And here I was thinking it might be something important, like maybe apologizing to your granddaughter for almost killing the twins? Don't go on exaggerating, Susan. I merely left the oven on for a few hours. It got a bit hot. Nobody was in danger of dying. You don't know that? Natalie and Frank can't even rely on you for a few hours to watch the kids. How difficult is it to stay sober while babysitting? I wasn't drunk, but whatever. I'll apologize, she mumbled. Now, as to why I wanted to talk to you. I leaned against the counter as my mother rambled on about how selfish I was by playing into Dad's fantasies, that I was riling him up. I got the feeling Dad made it sound like this was my idea, not his. Or maybe she was confused. Why do you even care what Dad is up to? I just think this is a bad idea, especially with the trouble you're in and Will's heart issues. My dad's heart issues. The reason I came back home. I had tried my own little disappearing act after graduating college. Well, not so much a disappearing act, more of an attempt to leave the past behind. I had married Phil Morley at the start of freshman year at SUNY Albany. He took a job as a second-shift security guard so he could watch Natalie during the day while I took classes. It was difficult, but we managed. That is, until the end of senior year, when I caught him with the stay-at-home mom in the neighboring apartment. Truth be told, I wasn't insanely angry. Quite the opposite, really. I'm pretty sure we wouldn't have gotten married in the first place if it wasn't for Natalie. A new life was calling, away from Phil, away from Albany, away from the Catskills. That's when Trudy Solomon popped back into my consciousness. I so wanted to believe she ran away, reinvented herself, became a stronger person, a different person. Could I do that? With Natalie in tow, I headed south to the city, hopeful my art history degree would land me a decent job. Mom thought I was crazy. Good luck raising a kid in New York City on an entry-level salary and no husband, she slurred during a typical unpleasant phone call. Dad, as usual, was absorbed in a case. I'll try and get down to see you and Natalie next week, he said week after week. I shed my married name and reverted back to Ford. 
managed to get a job pretty quickly, unit production assistant for a movie company. Between child support and my small paycheck, I was able to afford a cramped two-bedroom in Brooklyn's Borum Hill neighborhood. Second floor of a three-story brownstone. No elevator. One of the bedrooms the size of a walk-in closet. Then came Evan Smith, an on-again, off-again relationship, heavily reliant on sex. Too much sex, if that's even possible. Didn't matter if we were in a state of bliss or a time of war. The physicality of this relationship kept us in each other's orbit. That was until he was caught embezzling funds from his company. I should have done the dumping, but he dumped me when the trial was over. Twice burned, I threw myself into my work. I quit the production assistant job when a friend offered me a job as a location scout for a production company, which offered better pay and more independence. I ran around the five boroughs, New Jersey and Connecticut, cajoling homeowners, businesses, parks and recreation departments for use of their properties. My colleagues were in awe of my public record sleuthing. I was dubbed Queen of Acris, the automated city register information system, which listed owners of lots, blocks, and individual buildings. I once managed to convince a gas station owner to give our crew half a day to shoot a commercial near the pumps for a cologne called Antifreeze. I became a masterful liar, telling homeowners we would leave their homes as pristine as we found them. In reality, their homes looked like crime scenes after we packed up and left. I guess the appeal of having one's home in a movie overrides their obligation to read the fine print of the contract but I also became masterful at smoothing things over. Then, in 1999, I got the call. Susan, come home. Dad had a heart attack. Goodbye, Brooklyn. Hello, Catskills. Susan, you listening? Mom grumbled, breaking into my flashback. I wasn't. Didn't matter. I knew what she wanted. I'll give your two cents some thought, I said keeping my sarcasm in check. But I knew that I would, once again, do the complete opposite of what she wanted. I knocked on my bedroom door. I wondered if Thomas knew about the Calvin Barnes fiasco. Who around here didn't? Come in, Thomas shouted over the music. I handed him my card. If things go south here, or you want to chat about a school project, feel free to call me. He took my card and jammed it into his back pocket. Appreciate that. I closed the door but remained planted in front of it. Should I go back in and get a read on the situation or let it go? Understand where he stands on the matter? Understand where his sympathies lie? With Calvin, unarmed teenager, shot by a cop? With me, injured in the line of duty, trying to get drugs off the street— the decision was made for me when I heard glass shatter downstairs, followed by a flurry of curse words. Clearly, this was a sign. I turned and headed toward the kitchen to deal with another one of Mom's mishaps. Trudy Trudy sat in the cafeteria waiting for her Coke. Maxine! She yelled to the young woman sitting a couple of tables away. Maxine! She repeated, It's me. 
The woman smiled politely and nodded her head. Trudy stood and approached the woman. Hi, Maxine. To Trudy, Maxine was a real friend. Her only real friend. Someone she could tell her secrets to. Someone who wouldn't blab all over town. Maxine had her own fair share of trauma and bad luck. That's how you bond with a person, shared experiences that others dismiss as trivial, or tell you to just get over. Hi, the woman glanced at Trudy's hospital bracelet. Um, Ms. Solomon? Trudy blinked, then laughed. So formal. La-ti-da. I'm afraid you have me confused with someone else. Maxine, you say? Don't be silly, Trudy crouched down and whispered. The plan is in place. The plan? Right. We shouldn't talk about it here. Trudy glanced around, then sat down. She leaned in close to the young woman. I'm a bit nervous. No need to be nervous, the young woman said, patting Trudy's hand. I'm sure whatever it is will turn out just fine. I can always count on you, dear friend, to make me feel better. Chapter 5 Tuesday, October 30th, 2018 Eldridge gave me the go-ahead this morning. He framed it to his superiors as an under-the-radar assignment, keeping me out of public view while the Barnes controversy settled down. Said the higher-ups had great respect for my good old dad, William Ford, and approved his role as consultant. We were given two months and a small travel budget to figure this out. That gave us until New Year's Eve, a ridiculously tight deadline for a cold case with a tepid lead. Dad was certainly up for the challenge. Me? I was still a bit uneasy about digging around in the past when my present was kind of a mess right now. What's your plan of attack? Ray asked, tossing three hamburgers and buns on the grill. Two for him, one for me. I thought you weren't interested. I wasn't, but now that you're actually doing this, I am. I leaned against the deck railing, weighing the pros and cons of involving Ray. You know, Eldridge doesn't want me dragging you and your pals into this. He doesn't want his detectives distracted by this investigation. Well then, pretend I'm just your boyfriend, and you're bouncing ideas off of me. Besides, I broke this case. It would be pretty cruel shoes to leave me in the dark. Cruel shoes. Ray started using this expression a few years ago after reading Cruel Shoes, a collection of short stories by Steve Martin. It's the greatest work of literature I've ever read, he insisted. I told him I'd think about it, that I'd make my decision after dinner. I went back into the house and headed to the fridge to get salad fixings. My rear pocket vibrated. I glanced at my phone and let it go to voicemail. But it would have been cruel shoes to ignore the message, so I immediately texted Dad to let him know I was eating dinner and would call back later. Now that we had gotten the green light, he was champing at the bit to get started. Me? I preferred a day or two to process this. I needed to steel myself, psych myself up, to make sure I was ready to embark on this wild goose chase, 
which could bring relief or misery, or both. Besides, I planned to see Rhonda tomorrow. She called me out of the blue, although I had a feeling Natalie instigated it. Before the twins were born, Natalie attended Black Lives Matter weekend meetings at the Episcopal Church and worked with the group to organize marches and raise money for black candidates running for office. The death of Natalie's best friend spurred her to activism, she claimed. Her friend, Autumn Sanders, drove to Georgia two years ago for a job interview. Two weeks later, she was dead. The cops said she was weaving through traffic and changed lanes without signaling. When they asked her to get out of the car, they claimed she was uncooperative and had to use minimal force to get her to comply. She was tossed into a jail cell. That minimal force resulted in a few broken ribs, causing internal bleeding. No one checked on her throughout the night. By morning, she was dead in her cell. But the dash cam told a different story. Autumn changed lanes to presumably let the cop car go by. She wasn't weaving in and out of traffic. In fact, there wasn't another car in sight. When she moved over, the patrol car moved over behind her and turned on the lights and siren. There was no sound on the recording, but you see Autumn get out of the car after some back-and-forth conversation with the officer. When she stepped out, the cop grabbed her hair and slammed her to the ground with zero provocation. Zero. His partner exited the squad car and, in full view of the lens, spit on her. Then he kicked her repeatedly in the gut and once in the back for good measure. Did these guys not realize their vest cams were activated? Or did they not care because they'd done it before and were never called to task? What they didn't know was that Autumn's father worked in the New York State Attorney General's office as one of the lead prosecutors. When you know the right people, justice tips back in your favor. One cop was now rotting in jail. The other got off with a reprimand, but later lost his job when a hacker exposed his Facebook page full of racist, misogynistic, anti-Semitic, and homophobic tirades. Seems he was an equal-opportunity hater. I opened the slider to let Ray back in with the platter of burgers. Dad just called. I have a feeling he's going to be calling me a lot. I'm going to have to put up some guardrails. Knowing Will, he'll be bugging the hell out of you. You sure you want to do this? I've already said I would. I'm not going back on my word. Roger that. And I'm not starting until Thursday, so don't ask me what I plan to do until then. I need a couple of days to gather up the old files. And besides, I'm having lunch with Rhonda tomorrow. I'm hoping she can help me with my pro... The shooting incident. Maybe tamp down some of the animosity. I laced my fingers together and cracked my knuckles. But I haven't spoken to her since this happened. I'm not even sure Rhonda is on my side. But she's agreed to see you. Do you think she's meeting with you to ream you out? I doubt that. She knows you would never purposely shoot someone based on their race. You were on those police reform committees. You attended BLM meetings, for God's sake. It's not that simple. I don't know. Seems pretty simple to me. You saw the flash of a gun, and in that split moment, you had good reason to believe it was Barnes who shot you. 
the whole thing stinks. Chapter 6 Wednesday, October 31st, 2018 Rondo waved at me from a booth near the back of the diner. I was just five minutes late, but her near-empty glass of iced tea told me she'd been sitting there for some time. She shut her computer lid as I settled into the seat across from her. We engaged in small talk about the twins, my dad, her son. I ordered an egg salad sandwich. She got the turkey club. As luck would have it, we ran out of small talk just as the waitress arrived with our plates. Half the group is willing to give you the benefit of the doubt. Rhonda stabbed one of the sweet potato fries with her fork and sighed. They think it's important to show that the Black Lives Matter movement can recognize the difference between unjustified and justified police action, that not every incident is racially motivated, and we are a reasonably-minded movement. They believe that if Calvin was white, the outcome would have been the same. However, the other half are spitting mad. It's happened yet again, and this time in their own backyard. They just don't believe what the cops are saying, how things went down. I've heard the word cover-up a few times. Which half do you stand with? She took two bites of her sandwich before answering. It doesn't matter where I stand, Susan. Even if I was on your side, I can't go to bat for you. At least not publicly. She stabbed another fry and took a sip of iced tea. But I think there are some in the group who would go public to defend you, if that's what you're hoping. Your daughter intimated as much. Folks really respect Natalie. Her free counseling for kids at risk has been a godsend, and I think many see this as a way to pay it forward. I don't want to pit the members of the group against each other. I was hoping that you, as the head of this chapter, would be willing. Rhonda held up her left hand, palm facing out, fingers spread. I have to stop you right there. The last thing I need is a splintered group with me as the axe. Why do you think I suggested we have lunch here in Middletown, where no one will see us together? But if it makes you feel any better, I'm pretty sure if you fired your weapon, you had good reason to. I appreciate that. I wish I could convince others I had no choice. I didn't know Calvin Barnes, but I know people who knew him. They said he was a good kid under the influence of his not-so-good brother. I know he's being portrayed as this straight-A student who was in the wrong place at the wrong time. It's bullshit, I snapped. The waitress glanced over at us, her facial expression a mixture of curiosity and alarm at my rising voice. I inhaled sharply and slowly exhaled. He was a good student up until a year ago. That's when he decided dealing drugs was more important than homework. He wasn't some innocent kid caught in the crossfire. He was there setting up a buy. I saw it with my own eyes. You've seen his parents on TV? They claim he was tagging along with his older brother, Melvin, and had no idea he was going to pick up a few bags of weed. His brother said you shot him when he was just standing there with his hands up. Yet that's not what happened. Calvin was clearly in charge. His brother Melvin and the guy who shot me, Wayne Railman, were there for his protection. 
As I spoke, Rhonda gazed down at my clenched fists, then back at me. I relaxed them slightly, forming misshapen donut holes. And it wasn't just a few bags of weed. There was easily four ounces on that table, not to mention quite a few sandwich bags full of oxy. Intent to sell is a Class D felony. The problem people have is the cops say one thing and the victim's relatives say another. And, whoa, Rhonda, victim? Really? I squeezed my fists tight again. My fingernails dug into my moist palms. Victim connotes that he is innocent in all this. He's not. I unclenched and stared at the little half-moon indentations. I'm just telling you what other people think. What you're up against. Too bad the department didn't get the funding yet for the body cams. I think that would have helped your case. But without it, it's hard for these folks to just take your word for what went down. I knew Rhonda had limited options here. A difficult balancing act. She couldn't go all in for me, but she wasn't about to leave me stranded by the roadside. I relaxed my shoulders, which had inched up toward my ears. That's why I was hoping for your support on this. You've known me for, what, three years now? Have I ever given you any reason to believe I would shoot someone out of some kind of animus, consciously or subconsciously? It's not that. I leaned forward and whispered. I've gotten a couple threatening notes tucked under my windshield wipers, a few heavy breather calls to my home phone in the middle of the night. Rhonda bowed her head and clasped her hands as if she was praying. She shook her head, then asked, Threatening in what way? Watch your back kind of thing. Jeez. Tell you what, let me think about it, okay? We sat silently for a few minutes. The waitress must have sensed we had run out of things to talk about and appeared at our table. Anything else, ladies? Just a check, I said. My treat. I really appreciate you making the time to talk to me. I appreciate the generous offer, but I think we should split the bill. I got Rhonda's drift. She didn't want this to look like a bribe, even if it was just $18. Look, I know you want my support. Let me think about my next move. I'll get back to you by the end of next week. It's the best I can do, Rhonda said, clearly intent on putting an end to this discussion. So I hear that you're resurrecting the Trudy Solomon case. You know about that? Uh-oh, am I getting Natalie in trouble here? She mentioned it to me yesterday. No worries. I'm sure it'll be all over town soon enough. Yeah, I'm looking into it. With her turning up alive, we might have a better chance of finding out what happened to her. Plus, we have a lot more technology at our disposal for sleuthing. Did you know my mother was assigned to the doctor Trudy was supposed to see the day she went missing? Rhonda said. I looked up from signing my half of the bill. Interesting. I had no idea your mom worked at Monticello Hospital. Yeah, my mother was a student nurse there around the time Trudy disappeared. She even has a scrapbook with newspaper clippings about it. Did the police interview her back then? I don't know. I would imagine so. Maybe your dad would remember. My mom's name is Clara Cole. She works at Horizon Meadows now. 
caring for Alzheimer's patients. Isn't your dad a resident there? He is. Level one, independent living. I tapped the side of my forehead. Still has all his marbles. I made a mental note to add Clara Cole to the list of potential witnesses we needed to interview. Currently, a list of one. Ben Solomon. It was quite possible that everyone else associated with this case was dead, living elsewhere, or memory impaired. What in the world had I gotten myself into? Detective Susan Ford and her dad have quite the task in front of them as they attempt to piece together Trudy's life. I'm curious as to what they'll find. I bet you are, too. Tune in to Episode 2 for more. So don't forget to subscribe to CamCat Unwrapped. If you don't want to miss a beat, listen now on the audiobook platform of your choice. All our books are also available in print and ebook formats on camcatbooks.com or wherever books are sold. Before you go, please take a moment to leave us a review on your preferred podcast platform. Thank you so much. CamCat Unwrapped also offers other CamCat books as podcasts. Also, check out our interviews with authors, editors, and other bookworms, and our background episodes, where we unwrap exclusive content relating to our books. Tune in again to CamCat Unwrapped, because CamCat Unwrapped is where book lovers meet.